We are going to be studying Second Chronicles 17 through 20, more or less. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to look into your word now at this time. And I just ask for your, your help as we think back uh, many, many years and we look at the, the life of Jehoshaphat and we look at the people of Judah and, and just seek to learn the lessons and the reasons why you put these stories in the Bible for us to see. And so help us to listen, help us to learn, and then help us to apply when we ask it in your name. Amen. You may be seated. By the way, I do think, I remember now, my grandma had a friend named Beulah. So, uh, but if, if you want to have some fun, look up where that word actually came from, because it's not an actual word. It's a transliterated. And Daniel's right. It means basically, you know, heaven or paradise or uh, along those lines. <clears throat> anyway, um, when we lived in Colorado Springs for a while, my uh, I, I, one of the guys that I met was a, someone from the Air Force, and he was assigned to the Air Force Academy. He lived at the Air Force Academy with his family, and he was a musician. His job, he was paid to play the tubit at the football games on, in the pep band and to play bass with the orchestra. And, uh, you know, if there was the, the jazz group and a couple of other groups that the Air Force had that went touring at different times, that was his job. And, uh, you know, if you love music and you want to get paid for doing it, that was a pretty good job. You know, I mean, you get to do all that stuff and live right on bass. And, and uh, of course, living in Colorado Springs, that whole area is just beautiful anyway. And what would happen, again, imagine what would happen if suddenly, someday, the commander of the whole place came walking into the practice and said, okay, guys, this is over. Stop. Put all the instruments away. We're going to war, and you're going to lead us. Okay? And he started assigning them to fighter planes and all that other kind of stuff. And we sit back and go, that's just dumb. Why would anybody do that? And we wouldn't. But on one level, that's exactly what happened in chapter 20 of Second Chronicles. And we're going to get there in just a few minutes, and you'll see how and what, where that took place. Now, one of the things that was you're studying First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles is you're trying to figure out why and how these things were written and for what purpose. When Chronicles was actually written way, way later than all of the others. Uh, some people think it may actually have been the last book of the Old Testament to be written. Uh, probably by Ezra, and Ezra and and Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles. Those are the last three books of the Hebrew Old Testament in the order of the books that they've got. And if you read through Ezra and right on into Chronicles, there's a flow. You see the flow. You can feel it as you see that it's the same kind of way that the author is writing. So the style and so forth make us think that that's the case. But the reason, and just go ahead and put the chart up there first, just to let you know where we're headed today. Um, we're headed towards Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat mostly today. Next Sunday we'll go back and pick up where the two of them overlap together, and that's where we're going. But one of the, re- the reasons the Chronicles were written, I just wanted to touch on this as we're going. So the next one, thank you. Um, one of the reasons is you've got all these people who have come back to Jerusalem, they're trying to build the walls and trying to build the temple again. And the reason that Ezra wrote the book of Chronicles was to explain why they had gone through all that they just finished going through. You know, hey, we were just in captivity and blah, blah, blah. Well, Look at this book. Read these through, and then then you'll see why that that's the case. Uh, to teach the real life lessons from the kings of Judah, 
I mean, there's a whole lot of things that we see in, in the Chronicles that are things that we can learn from. And, and, and if you haven't done it, some of the chapters we're going to go through today, if you go home and just read them, you know, read them like you would read a, a novel. I mean, it's amazing the stories that are there, especially chapter 20. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's another thing. There's wonderful lessons for life. And to show the line of kings with the Messiah, there's a genealogy that starts in, in Chronicles. It takes us all the way through. And so, again, you see that, that thread that's there. And then, again, to show the desperate need for the Messiah, the King of Israel, a desperate need for him to come and, and to show on one level that all of the other kings could not be him. They fell short. They're part of the genealogy and they're part of where he's coming from, but they are not, they are not the Messiah. So that's just kind of some thoughts as we jump into uh, Second Chronicles. And we'll start in chapter 17. We'll be jumping through and kind of hitting verses, highlights here and there. <clears throat> and... Um, Let's go ahead and start with verse 1 of chapter 17. Then Jehoshaphat, Asa's son, became the next king. And he strengthened Judah to stand against any attack from Israel. So, you know, he becomes king. Asa was a, was a mostly good king, except maybe at the end of his life, he wasn't so great. And then you've got Jehoshaphat that comes along and he takes over. And one of the first things that he does is a military thing. He goes out and all of the cities that have walls, he strengthens the walls. Maybe he makes them taller. And he puts garrisons of soldiers in those places. And so he begins make sure that military military wise they are ready in case Israel decides to come and attack them again like they had done during his father's lifetime so he was ready for war but look at verse 3 this is where there's just some cool stuff that happened with him the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father's early years and all the other translations new living doesn't go there but all the other translations say that the father that's being spoken of here is David so his father David, um, you know, he walked in the path of his father David and did not worship the images of Baal. And and stop and think about the, this high compliment that's being paid here to, to uh, Jehoshaphat. He's being compared to David favorably. They're saying, hey, like his father David... He was walking according to his line. By the way, it's like his father David in his early years. It's interesting how it, it, he makes sure that that's said there. And look at what verse 4 says. At the end of 3 says, He did not worship the images of Baal. He sought his father's God and obeyed his commands instead of following the evil practices of the kingdom of Israel to the north. So verse 5 tells us that the Lord established and Jehoshaphat's control over Judah and all the people you know, brought him gifts. And all of a sudden he's like Solomon. He's getting all these gifts from all these different places. But look at verse 6. He was deeply committed to the ways of the Lord. He removed the pagan shrines or the high places, your translation may use, and the Asherah poles from Judah. Isn't that incredible. So you've got a man here who's serious, serious about the Lord, and and this is in a time frame when you look to the Northern Kingdom, nobody was serious about the Lord except some of the prophets and people that helped the prophets. So just to give you kind of a just a little chart to show you what what we've seen so far very quickly, Jehoshaphat followed a good example of his father. Let's go ahead and put that chart up there if you would please. Thank you. He followed the good example of his father, David. Uh, he did not worship the Baals, and it's plural here, so that means it includes all of the Canaanite gods, not just Baal, but Asherah and any of the other gods that were involved there. He didn't mess with any of that. 
It says he sought after God to seek God's presence. He was seeking an ongoing work of God in his own life. That's what he was doing. And then he obeyed God's commands. He purposely chose to do what God said. He said, I'm, I'm going to do what the scriptures are telling me here to do. He was deeply devoted to the Lord. And this is one of those statements that when you think about it, think about what it means to be deeply devoted to the Lord. It means he was courageously committed to the ways of God and it didn't matter what anybody else thought. That's kind of the thinking that's coming through in that statement. And then because of his deep devotion to God and the fact that he was obeying God's commands, he removed the places of idol worship and the, the shrines and the Asherah poles and all those things. It didn't stop there, though. Let's go into verse 7 and see what he does. In the third year of his reign, Jehoshaphat sent his officials to teach in all the towns of Judah. Uh, and then he tells us all the names of the officials. And then it says he sent the Levites along with them, gives us their names, and he also sent out the priests And he gives us those names as well. So he sends out these people, and they're teaching the people. Now what is it that they're teaching? Verse 9. They took copies of the book of the law of the Lord, and they traveled around through all of the towns of Judah, teaching the people. Isn't that awesome? I mean, you stop and think about what's going on here. You've got people who don't, I mean, this is, this is ancient Israel. There wasn't opportunities for them to all come to Jerusalem and send out the teachings of some of the priests. And so King Jehoshaphat says, we can, do, we can do something about this. And so what does he do? He takes government people, government officials, and he takes Levites, and he takes priests, and he says, we're going to put together a team of people, and you guys are going on the road, and you're going to hit every single town, and you're going to spend time in every single town teaching God's Word. Take these five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and help people know what's in those books. Teach them those books. And I, as, as I thought about that, I thought, wow, we haven't heard about this with any other king. This is, this is Jehoshaphat's thing. And so you've got officials and Levites and priests teaching God's word and teaching people how to apply it. And what are the results of that? Well, the results, if you look at verse 10, I believe part of the results there are, Then the fear of the Lord fell all over all of the surrounding kingdoms, so that none of them wanted to declare war on Jehoshaphat. And then it talks about the Philistines bringing gifts and others bringing gifts to them. But his big thing was, okay, I've got the cities defended and protected. Now let's get into God's Word. Let's take people and let's teach them. Let them learn what it means to be a follower of God in all in every single way. He wanted them to be able to sincerely follow uh, the Lord God of Israel. There are some implications here. Verse 3 tells us that Jehoshaphat did not seek the Baals. In, in other words, he didn't seek after them. He tried to worship them. Instead, in verse 4, he sought his father's God and obeyed his commandments. And I looked at this verse a lot as I was studying and thinking this week over this passage. And I asked the question, what does it really mean to seek after God? What does that mean? What does that look like? How do I seek after God's presence in my life? How do, how do I do that? And that just took me in a number of different places as I was thinking that through. Um, David told Solomon just before he died, and after he'd made preparations for the temple and all that, David brings Solomon in and he says, Now determine in your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. He's turning over to Solomon a kingdom of, that's peaceful, peaceful. 
He's turning over to Solomon a kingdom that has wealth and power. And his main job was to build the temple and to bring the ark to the temple and all that. So David is saying, now you need to determine in your heart and your mind to seek God, to seek him with all your heart. And early in Solomon's reign, that's exactly what he did. Again, this quote really encouraged me. Go ahead and child, go to the next one, please. Thank you. <clears throat> it is a conscious choice to direct the heart and mind towards God. That's what it means to seek. That's what it means to seek after God. It's a conscious choice to direct my thought and heart from wherever it happens to be towards the Lord God. Now, we need to remember that he's always with us, and, and we know that because he's everywhere present. So on one level, you don't have to seek him in that way. We also know that he's with us, and he's working out all things for good in our lives and the lives of people around us. But when we talk about making a conscious choice to seek after God, that's that's a little different. It's, those other things are there, and they're always there. He's there in those situations. So again, I was trying to think through, how, how do I think this through in ways that are helpful to me and maybe to others as well? And, and Colossians 3 is a, is a passage, the first three verses that just came to mind. Matter of fact, I was reading the Seek God sections, and one of the thoughts that came to mind was Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Huh. Pretty simple, right? So how do you set your heart? Where's the my heart set at this moment? Just, just ask yourself, where's my heart set right now? Is it on what we're listening to? Is it on God's word? Or, and this happens to all of us, I, maybe I'm thinking about those bills I haven't paid yet, or maybe I'm thinking about where I want to go out to lunch afterwards. How do we set our heart on Christ? It takes that conscious choice to say, no, I'm not going to think about that bill. I'm not going to think about where we're going. I'm not going to, and whatever the situation is that you're in. We see more of a choice in the statement, set your mind on things above, not on the stuff of earth. Uh, here's a quote that I came across again that was really helpful to me. <clears throat> Thank you. The setting of the mind is the opposite of mental coasting. Think about that. Setting of the mind is the opposite of just kind of, yeah, whatever, you know, whatever drifts in and out. It is, this is where I stole the first quote from, it is the conscious choice to direct the heart towards God. It's a conscious choice. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that every minute of every day we're saying, i got to drink my heart again. But it is the sense of, no matter what I'm doing, I know God is with me, and I can fire up a prayer in the middle of whatever I'm doing of gratefulness, thankfulness. I can fire up a prayer saying, God, I am in desperate need here, help. And that's just knowing that there's a God is present with me at all times and practicing that whole idea in my mind. I think that's part of what it means to set our mind on things above. When I was 19, <clears throat> I was uh, in a one-year training program, uh, and I was preparing to go and be a missionary for two years in Ecuador at the time. And while I was there, I met an older woman. She was 21. And she'd been a missionary in Asia. And I met her and started talking to her, and I, fe- I mean, I fell in love. You cannot believe how I fell in love. It was like... And it was all over. And, and I'm, you know, I'm 
When you're going through that, you kind of think the end of the world is going to happen if you don't have the opportunity to be with this person. And I was sort of thinking those kinds of things. And fortunately, I didn't say anything. You know, that's when you say dumb things many times. And I didn't, thankfully. And I went to see my mentor, and I started sharing with him what was going on. And he said, oh, man, really? You know, <clears throat> here, let me give you a passage of Scripture. And he gave me Colossians 3, 1 through 3. And he says, I want you to memorize those verses. And they said, the next time some kind of frivolous thought comes into your mind or you're daydreaming about what your wedding would be like with this, this lady, you need to start saying these words in your mind and focusing your heart on the things above, which is on Christ and on what he's done for you and all that has gone on because of his work in your life. It's amazing. It worked. I don't even remember her name, and I'm thankful. I, you know, very, very thankful. Carol, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Stop and think about that. What did I do? I set my mind on the things above. I was distracted. I was thinking and, and just all kinds of things going through my mind. And this was a, such a great lesson to learn. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And it goes down in in verse 2. Set your minds and hearts. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Um, What an incredible thing. Now if we're really honest, I think, about it, many times our thoughts and minds are focused everywhere but God. And on one level, I suppose that's kind of normal. I, if I'm driving my car, I don't want to be so far gone in my thinking about the Lord that I don't see the stoplight. And I just kind of go blown right through it. But I can also be driving properly, carefully, and at the same time, be in a, having a sense of an awareness that I am in God's presence. And that I can direct my thoughts towards Him and I can focus on Him even while I'm doing these other things. We need to seek God and renew and restore our relationship with Him. I think that's what the whole idea of seeking God is all about. It's set your mind and, and set your heart on the things that are above, not, not on earthly things. And I guess the question I'd have to ask myself is when I'm struggling, where's my focus? What is it that I'm struggling about? Why is it that this particular issue or Event is causing me to go through this thinking. And many times I go back to the fact that uh, I'm not setting my mind on things above. I'm not seeking God at that point. And, and it's a refocusing of my thoughts and a refocusing of my heart again and saying, okay, Lord, uh, if this is a, something that needs to be taken care of, then I'm trusting you to help me do that. But in the meantime, I need to get on track and to follow and to serve you. We are all called to make the conscious choice to seek and follow and honor God in our lives. Again, please understand, I'm not saying that it's 100%, you can't think of anything else. But it is the general sense of his presence with us at all times. And we continue to seek him um, in those times when we're alone. Another implication is from verse 7. Verse 7, in the third year of his reign... Jehoshaphat sent his officials to teach in all the towns of Judah. And again, just thinking that through, 
what was he looking for? Under Asa, there had been this uh, renewal of the covenant, and yet that seemed to kind of drift a little bit towards the end of his reign. And now Judah is saying, we can do better. We can, or no, I'm sorry, Jehoshaphat is saying, we can do better. Let's get people into the towns and into the villages, and, and let's teach people. And what was he looking for? He was looking for a revival, a renewal of, of their commitment to God and to his word. And as they learn to apply God's word individually, they could also then begin to apply God's word to others as well. You see, the secret that we sometimes miss in the Old Testament, I think, is that it's all about sacrifices and things that we don't have to do anymore. But there's a whole lot more in the Old Testament than that. If you think about the fact that Jesus summarized the whole of the law in, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Think about that. How much of that is things that you're supposed to do, and how much of it is relationship? It's relationship with God and relationship with others. And that's why, think of he's sending people out to, to teach, and he's sending them out to teach so that they understand it's about knowing God and then treating people right, treating your neighbors in a way that is correct and proper. And so, verse 10, the result would be, hopefully, as the government officials and Levites and the priests come through teaching people are learning um, that the fear of the Lord would fall on all of the surrounding kingdoms, but also the, each village and town itself. Not the fear of the Lord in the sense of being scared to death, but the fear of the Lord in the sense of saying, Lord, man, we want to honor and please you in everything. Give us that ability to do the things that you've called us to do. Give us the ability to see the wonder and the goodness of your law and that you made it for us so we could know you and so we could relate to each other well. And as they did that, then the whole idea of the internal peace that came to them as a result of that would be the case. Now, we're going to keep on going because we've got another four or five chapters to hit here. So... (laughs) Chapter 18, we're going to hit next week, so take some time to read that, and there's some parallel passages in Kings. But just so that we're aware of the flow, in chapter 18, Jehoshaphat aligns himself with Ahab, and they do some things, and they go to war together. Chapter 19, Jehoshaphat comes back to Jerusalem, and a prophet confronts him and says, what you've done is wrong. It's, you should not have been doing this. And the wonderful thing about that prophet confronting him, remember his dad was confronted by a prophet and he threw the prophet in jail. But Jehoshaphat is challenged and he accepts that apparently and apparently confesses because look at what happens in the next statement. Chapter verse four, chapter eight, um, 19 verse 4. Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, but he went out among the people traveling from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim. From north to south, and I'm assuming everything in between, he traveled everywhere. And what was he doing? Encouraging the people to return to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. How cool is that? The king himself is out there saying, hey, we sent the people around to teach you, and I'm just out here to encourage you to go back to to following God. Verse 5, he appointed judges throughout the nation. And this seems to be what he's doing here in this section. He's appointing judges in each village, in each town. And, and, and he tells the judges this, um, always think carefully before pronouncing judgment. And then remember that you do not judge to please the people, but the Lord. And so he's putting people in place who are people who are going to be honest and people of integrity to take care of the things that are coming up. Uh, in, in their communities. Um, and then he says, fear the Lord, judge in, with integrity. 
The Lord God does not tolerate perverted justice, partiality, or taking a bribe. So he says, listen, you need to pay attention to this. We're putting these people in place, and you that we're putting in place, you need to understand that you are being given an incredibly difficult task, but God will help you. So do what you're supposed to do. Judge with integrity. When problems come with you, you you take it to God, and you work with God, and you resolve those things in that way. Now, it's interesting, I came across this, this quote that I thought kind of encouraged me in this whole chapter. It said, it makes no sense to teach everybody to obey divine law and then not enforce it. That's what's happening in this section now. He's going along saying, okay, we, we taught you God's law, now let's make sure that we're applying it. And to make sure that we're applying it, we're putting some people in place that will be the judges of, of situations. Remember that there are more. There was more to the law than sacrifices and personal righteousness. It also included instructions for the people of God on how to function as a community. Okay, so God's law was about knowing God and then behaving in in the right way towards the other people around you. So. In Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat then appointed the high courts in Jerusalem at 12. Verse 9, he says this to them, You must always act in the fear of the Lord with faithfulness and an undivided heart. And then in verse um, 11, he's encouraging these judges, especially the ones he's just appointed in Jerusalem, be like the Supreme Court. There was a civil one and and a religious one. He says, I want you to take courage as you fulfill your duties, and may the Lord be with those who do what is right. And so there's that whole sense. And, and there's, a, there's just a whole bunch of things that he did as he was going through. These are the things that he told the judges. Very quickly, I'll just share these. Think before you pronounce judgment. Judge to please the Lord. Fear the Lord and judge with integrity. Never pervert justice or show favoritism. Never take bribes. Be faithful. Do not have a divided heart. And take courage. Do what is right. Wouldn't that be awesome to post that somewhere where you've got, uh, you know, people who are in political scene? That'd be wonderful if something like that could be what's being applied. And yet that's exactly what Jehoshaphat was trying to do. So now we get to that last <clears throat> section, chapter 20. And in chapter 20, uh, again, I, I just want to let you know, you'd be, I think you would enjoy it greatly if you'd go home and just read the whole thing. Um, especially if you read it from uh, like the New Living Translation or something like that, because it just it just flows like this amazing story that's being told. And um, anyway, there are three armies that are from the surrounding nations that have gathered together to come against Israel, and uh, they come marching against Israel. And for whatever reason, Israel doesn't know until they're almost right there. So, verse three, Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news. And begged the Lord for guidance. He ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. Now, you know what? If you're scared to death and, and you're leading, uh, like he is, the, the nation of, of Judah, what a great place to go. He's scared to death. So what does he do? He prays. He says, Lord God, I need help. And you know what? There's something there for us, isn't there? You ever been scared of a decision you have to make or somewhere you have to go or something that you have to do? I have. Oh, you have to, doesn't take it away, but you can get help. When you say, Lord God, I don't know what I'm doing here. Please help me. He goes on in verse 6 and he, he prayed, O oh Lord God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. 
You are ruler of all of the kingdoms of earth. You are powerful and mighty, and no one can stand against you. And that, again, there's that sense of directing thoughts and hearts and setting minds on who God is. Who is God? Well, He's the Almighty God. He's the creator of the universe. He's the one that sustains all things. So when I pray to God, I'm praying to the ruler of all of the kingdoms. I'm praying to God and God alone. Verse 12. Oh, our God, won't you stop them? We are powerless against this mighty army. So just stop and think about what he's saying here. God, won't you stop them? We're powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. And he's saying, hey, we're looking out there. We're seeing this huge, huge army. He says, we're powerless. There's nothing we can do. We do not know what to do, but we are looking to you for help. Um, One of the other translations puts it this way. We are powerless before this huge army. We have no clue as to what to do. But our eyes are on you. What better place than putting our eyes on him? And you know what? I don't know what you're facing in this next week or in this next month. Maybe you are discouraged. Maybe you're facing some things that could bring fear. Again, it's one of those things where we go back and we say, Lord God, I don't know what to do. But I'm putting my eyes on you. I'm looking to you because I've got nowhere else to look. And the prophet speaks up and he says, this is what the Lord says, verse 15. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army. <laughs> On one level, stop and think about what's being said here. They're scared to death. I mean, they're looking out there, they're seeing this huge army. They know that they don't have a chance. And the first thing the prophet says is, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged about this big army. You know, it's kind of like saying, don't worry, be happy. Um, that's not what he's saying exactly, but... Yeah, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army. He has a good reason for it, though. For the battle is not yours, but God's. He's saying, if you had to handle this, yeah, be afraid. Be very afraid. Maybe you should start running now. That's, that's what he should have said if God wasn't in the picture. But God is in the picture. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. That's, that's huge. He goes on in verse 17. You will not even need to fight. Now, I bet you everybody in the army all of a sudden went, what? 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 We aren't going to need to fight? Really? You will not even need to fight. Take your positions, then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. So on one level, what he's saying to them is, okay, get your army in place and put all the people where they're supposed to be. Line up like you're going to go out there and fight and then just stand there. Stand there and watch. And look at what it says. Stand still and watch the Lord's victory. The Lord's victory. Well, they believed God. And early the next morning, the whole army and Judah went to the wilderness and they started out towards where they were supposed to go. On the way, Jehoshaphat stopped them. That's verse 20. Listen to me, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be able to stand firm. See, he he understands that when they're just standing there, and all of a sudden all of these three armies are coming at them, that the 
thought might be, okay, it's time to leave. And he says, no, no, no. Believe in the Lord our God, and he'll give you the ability to stand firm in the face of this horde, this humongous army that's coming at us. After consulting the people, the king appointed singers. Here we go, back to the introduction, right? The king appointed singers. I'd love to have seen this, actually. To walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. And this is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord, his faithful love endures forever. Now, wouldn't you love to have heard that band? I'm serious. I mean, here they are. They're marching out to war. And and what do they do? They put the band in the front. Well, God said they aren't going to have to fight, right? So they put them put them out there, and they're praising God, and they're worshiping God. And it's interesting because that as soon as they start, I think the next verse says, as soon as they started, at that very moment, when they started to sing and praise God, God caused the armies to fight against each other, and no one survived. It took four days to carry all the plunder away from the battlefield. So what happened was that two of the armies ganged up on, the, on one of them, they're gone, and now the other two take each other on, and they just basically cancel each other out. And what was Israel doing? They were singing songs and watching. They were just standing there, like God told them to. How many times do you get to do that? And, and, and then, like I said, it took four days for them to go out and get the, get the weapons and any of the, 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 the things that they had with them. I mean, everything that was there was something they could take and use. In four days. <laughs> they just went out and kept bringing stuff back. <clears throat> I, sometimes I think God must have an incredible sense of humor. You know, this is this is this is a horrible situation. This is looking face, looking death in the face. And so, what does He do? He says, "Yeah, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it." And then they praise God and they sing. And look what God does. He just He does the incredible and the impossible. Now, there's a really, really, really deep spiritual application here. Let me just give it to you, okay? Go ahead and put it up there. If God is for us, who can be against us? It seems pretty simple, but on the other hand, it's also pretty profound. If God is for us, who can be against us? So so what are you facing? What's looming over you that just seems like a giant wave that's going to take you under? What is it that you are looking at and saying, God, I, I don't know. That's okay. God is for us. Who can be against us? In our case, we're to look to the cross. We're to look to our Savior who died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and intercedes for us at God's right hand. That's awesome. That's just powerful. What do we take away from this? I'm going to take us to another one of those places. I've got my top five scriptures, and this is one of them. Colossians 3 is another one. This is, again, our way to apply the whole idea of of setting our lives or our eyes on God. Look at what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We're in a race. And uh, we're not competing with other believers. We're all running the race. Maybe not always together, but we're all running. And 
The advice of the writer of Hebrews here is very, very clear. Throw off everything that hinders and sin which entangles. So we want to grow in our ability to seek after God and to set our hearts and our minds on Him. The place that it starts is to throw off everything that hinders and set aside all those sins which entangle us. And then we keep on going. We keep on running and we keep on keeping on, even if it means that we just go one foot after the other, the race that's set before us. See, we can't seek after God while our minds are reveling in things of the gutter that we kind of, you know, get filthy when we're doing. We can't set our minds on God while at the same time we're enjoying that secret sin nobody knows about. He says, throw off the things that take your mind where it was never intended to go. Back away from those things that can twist you into knots and leave you helpless and tied up and feeling guilty. Run away by running to Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Run away by running to Jesus. And then run and never quit. Keep on going. Keep on going. Verse 2, he says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix our eyes. That's, again, that conscious choice. I am choosing to fix my eyes on Jesus. I'm choosing to think about Him, the author and the perfecter of my faith. I'm choosing to look at Him who went through all, all of the horrors of the crucifixion. For me, I'm choosing to focus on Him. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. In verse 3, it says, Consider Him. So you fix your eyes, let's just set your mind on Him. Consider Him. Again, set your mind and your thoughts on Him. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men, and there's a reason for it, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Him. So when I'm weary and I'm ready to give up, that's when I stop. And I think and I remember... And Jesus hanging on a cross and all that came before that and, and how he did all of that because he knew it had to be done. My sins could not be forgiven without his death. None of yours could either. We wouldn't be able to walk in the way that we are now if it wasn't for Jesus Christ and his death. So consider him. Set our hearts and our minds on him. Seeking is the conscious effort to get past the things that hinder and entangle us. That's why setting those things aside and, and, and leaving those things behind is so critical and important. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Consider Him. I came across this quote that also encouraged me. To set our minds towards God in all our experiences is to direct our minds and hearts towards Him through His Word And this is what seeking God means. God's Word has a powerful impact on us. And we can go to God's Word and have that sense of His encouragement and strength and help. Now, there are other ways that we can seek God. Not not primarily. Primarily it's God's Word and prayer, that kind of thing. But the heavens tell the glory of God. 
And guess what? We can go out and just look at the heavens and go, wow, God put all those there and all the ones that I can't even see. A million, trillion galaxies or whatever it is. Have you ever been really angry and upset and then stood by either the ocean or somewhere and you just stand there for a little bit and after a while just kind of all that other stuff? It doesn't matter. Because we see the Creator and His power. And we're so thankful that He He belongs to us and we belong to Him. He reveals Himself in His Word and so we seek Him through that. And He shows Himself in the gracious way that He works in the lives of people around us. Have you ever watched someone or known someone and you see what God has done and you just sit back and go, Wow, God, you are amazing. You not only saved that person, you changed them dramatically. And see, I, I can do that for me. I can say, yeah, I see where God's worked in me. But when you see Him doing it in others as well, that's when you sit back and say, God is so big. What an incredible God we have. We are called to seek after God, to pursue our relationship with Him. And so we fix our eyes on Him, and we, we set our eyes on where He is in, in the heavenly places. And when we're tired and we consider Him, because that's the only source of strength we have, and we go to Him when we're exhausted and we can't even see straight, and we say, Lord God, I need Your sustaining grace. Help. That's what we're called to, no matter what the situation is. Set our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder and the challenge that we are to set our minds on you. Lord, I pray that this week... I'm looking at what's coming and already wondering how I'm going to do it. Just please, God, help me. Help me to focus on you and to trust you and to keep seeking you no matter how busy things might get. I pray for my brothers and sisters as well. Lord, in each situation, touch their hearts and their lives and give them that reminder that you're there and that you will help. And so as a church family, may we seek after you. We ask in your name. Amen.